thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, we just had the great privilege of worshiping God through song, and I want you to think about some important questions when it comes to worship and kind of ponder that as we uh, start looking at uh, what we're going to be looking at here in Acts chapter 16. Uh, The first question is, why should you worship God? Think about that. If someone were to come to you, and maybe an unbeliever, and they were to pose that question to you, why should you worship God? What kind of answer would you give to them? The second question is, when should you worship God? If you know the why, then, then, then when? Is that just something that we do you know, on a Sunday and on a midweek when we come together as believers? Or you know, when should we worship God? And third, how does your worship of God impact others. When you're worshiping God, what impact does it have on the lives of people that are looking and seeing your worship? Well, here in Acts chapter 16, we're going to see a great lesson of worship from Paul and from Silas, and we're going to see uh, really the answer to these three important questions. Why should we worship? When should we worship? And how does your worship impact those who are seeing you Worship. So we're going to learn three great lessons about worship from, from what we see from Paul and Silas and the worship that they demonstrate to God here in Acts chapter 16. So let's see what we can learn and uh, what the situation is that leads up um, to that. Can you hit the slides for me? Two. Well, another one. Another one. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us and brought her master's much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. So we have the missionary team of Paul and Silas and Timothy, and if you remember last week, Luke, uh, the author of this uh, letter, uh, he also joins the team, and, and they're, they're going around and they're praying, and something a little bit odd happens. We see a, a slave girl who's demon-possessed, and these demons who are possessing her give her power, uh, and we see that through Scripture, and the power that she, they give to this girl, we're told that she had the power of divination, so she was able to really kind of talk about, she was basically a fortune teller. Now today we have all sorts of people who claim to be fortune tellers and they're just scam artists, but you know, there are those that are demonically possessed and have power. And this girl was one of those people. And so uh, Luke tells us that she followed them. Uh, And imagine this, here's this demon possessed girl and she's, you know, following them around. and, And she says, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. 
So day one goes by, day two goes by, day three goes by. Who knows how many days go by. Finally, Paul just gets annoyed with what's going on. Now, it's interesting that this girl is actually speaking truth. Uh, What she says is actually true. But I think Paul, just like Jesus, Jesus had demons speak truth, saying that he was the son of God, but he stopped them from speaking. He commanded them not to speak. And I don't think Paul needed, you know, demonic uh, people telling telling others about his ministry. And so he uh, says to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the demon immediately leaves this girl. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he cast out demons with his own authority. But notice here, Paul, and we see a pattern throughout the New Testament, they cast out demons with the power of Jesus' authority. See, in and of yourself, you don't have authority over Satan, you don't have authority over demons, but in Jesus' authority, you do. In Jesus' power, you do. You know, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says this, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, this verse reveals such an important truth for us. The Spirit of God that is dwelling in us is greater than Satan, greater than his demons, greater than this world. And I sometimes think we forget that as Christians and we feel bogged down and overwhelmed and we think, oh man, we're on the losing side of this. No, we have in us what is greater than what is in the world. The Spirit of God can enable you to overcome anything that Satan brings against you, anything that this world would bring against you. Well, this girl now who has this power because of this demonic gift is now, that's taken away. The demon is cast out. Her ability to do divination is gone. And this creates a problem because her masters, because she's a slave, they used her. Hey, she has this power. People are willing to, to pay for this power. And so they made a lot of money off of this girl. And now she doesn't have this ability anymore. And so let's see what happens when the masters discover that her power is gone. Verse 19. But when her masters saw that her hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the masters, they discover that this slave girl no longer has the power that she did, and therefore she no longer has the ability to make them money as she once did. And so they're not happy about that. So they grab Paul and Silas, and they take them before the magistrates there in the city of Philippi. And they have some accusations against Paul and Silas. Notice their first accusation is, these men being Jews trouble our city. Now, I want you to note something. Last week, we said there was no synagogue there. And if there was 10 Jewish men, there would be a synagogue. So there was very few Jewish people living in Philippi. And many historians say that the reason for that was because there was a big, strong anti-Semitic feeling within Philippi. So they were anti-Jews. Now, listen to this. There's four guys on this missionary team, Paul and Silas, who are Jews, Luke, who's a Greek, and Timothy, who's only half Jewish. So Paul and Silas definitely look Jewish. And so they only grab those two guys. They bring them in front of the magistrates. 
these being Jewish, trouble our city. And so obviously saying trouble our city was an accusation, but also they're emphasizing this fact that, hey, we don't like Jewish people. These Jewish guys are here. And so they're trying to you know, get the magistrates upset already just from this reality. So that's the first uh, thing that they you know, condemn them for. And the second thing that they say is these men teach unlawful customs that we cannot receive or observe being Romans. It's most likely referencing the fact that when you teach the gospel, you say that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king. Now, Romans were required to say that Caesar is Lord and Caesar is king. And so say, hey, hey, for us Romans, they're telling us that we have to declare that Jesus is the one true king, not Caesar. So they're telling us things that are unlawful for us to do as Romans. Now, I think it's important to note that these guys really don't give the true reason for why they're upset with Paul and Silas. They, they want to present it to the magistrates of, oh, it's because we're such you know, devoted Romans and these guys are just these Jewish people who are making trouble. But the real reason that they're upset is they lost money. You know, This girl who was making them lots of money doesn't make them money anymore. That's their real issue here and they want to get back and get rid of Paul and Silas because of it. Well, the magistrates of Philippi, they believe these false accusations against Paul and Silas. And notice how they respond. They command that their, to- their clothes be torn off and that they be beaten. And then once they're beaten, they put them into prison and they command that the jailer put them into the inner prison and they put their feet in stocks. Now, here is a picture of what stocks were like. Um, They would open that up and you would put your foot in there and they would close it down over your ankle so you can't get your feet back out. And it basically had two purposes. The first one was to confine you to whatever space uh, that they stuck you in. But they also had the other purpose of really making it miserable for you while you were in prison. Uh, F.F. Bruce, a commentator, says this, These stocks had more than two holes for legs which could be forced apart in such a way as to cause the utmost discomfort and cramping pain. And so these weren't pleasant to be stuck in all day long. And so, you know, imagine this. I want you to try to picture how horrible this would have been. You just had your clothes ripped off and you were just beaten uh, there in Philippi. Then you're uh, taken and you're thrown into basically a dungeon because prisons back then, that's really what they were. They were dark, they were smelly, they were disease infested. Uh, And as you're in this prison now, you're stuck in these stocks. So you're in this dungeon, in this horrible pain, in this discomfort, your, your feet are bound in stocks, and so you would have been doing very bad physically, and a lot of pain, a lot of physical torment. But you also know, you, you don't know when you're getting out. These guys just cast you in there, you don't know what's going to happen, you don't know how long they're going to keep you there, you don't know if the punishment's going to even be more severe, if they're going to kill you. you know, so there's a lot of emotional distress as well, not just physical distress, but emotional distress because you know, presently your situation's horrible and you don't know if your future's going to get even worse. And you know what, I'm confident that in all of this they were spiritually attacked as well. You know, Satan loves to attack us when we're physically weak, when we're physically drained, when we're going through a lot of physical hardships because we're much more vulnerable to his attacks. Notice what he does with Jesus. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days without any food. And notice Satan doesn't start attacking until after Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and he's super hungry. And the first temptation is, hey, why don't you make these stones into bread? So he's waiting for physical weakness because that's when we are uh, more vulnerable to his attacks. And, And I can imagine some of the things that Satan might have posed to 
Paul and Silas of, hey, you know, if God really loves you, he loves to throw that one at you, you know, how could you be in this horrible circumstance? You were just preaching the gospel. You just cast a demon out of a girl and freed her. How is it now, if God really loves you, that you're sitting in this dungeon having been beaten? You know, surely God doesn't love you if that happened. And, you know, maybe you really weren't supposed to come here to Macedonia. You thought that was God's calling, but obviously look at your circumstances. Surely this isn't where God wants you. Or, you know, how long are they going to keep you here? Are they ever going to let you out of this prison? I'm sure all these different things were being said to them. Have you ever noticed that Satan attacks often come in the form of questions? We see that with Eve. We see that throughout Scripture. He loves to question things. And there's three main things that he often questions. He questions God's word. He questions God's love, and he questions God's fairness. And we see that all the time of of that's what he wants to attack. He wants us to doubt the word of God, the love of God, the fairness of God. And he brings those things to us in our times when we're most vulnerable because we've been going through great difficulty. So Paul and Silas, they're definitely physically going through hardship, emotionally going through hardship, uh, spiritually going through hardship. And to top it all off, they didn't do anything to deserve it. I mean, it's one thing when you're in prison because you've broken a law, but all they did was cast out a demon out of a slave girl and freed her from that. They haven't done anything wrong, and this is the situation that they find themselves in. Now, if this happened to you, how do you think you would respond in that situation? How do you think you would respond in that dungeon, in pain, with your back bleeding, with your feet in those stocks? How do you think you would respond if you were treated so horribly when you were innocent of any wrongdoing? How do you think you would respond to the attacks of Satan, maybe trying to get you to question God's word or God's love for you or God's you know, fairness? Would you respond with bitterness and anger? Would you respond with venting at these guards and shouting at them for how dare they treat you in this unjust way? Would you respond by buying into Satan's lies that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't care about you, because surely if he did, this wouldn't be the circumstances you would find yourself in? Think about that. How would you respond if that was you? And as you ponder that, I want us to look at how Paul and Silas respond. How do they respond to this situation that is so horrible, that is so unjust for them? And I want us to note it because it's a great example for us. Verse 25, note what it says. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. In the midst of this horrible situation, notice what we see Paul and Silas doing. They respond to this situation through worship. They're praying to God and they're singing hymns to the Lord. And notice we're told the prisoners were listening to them. Now, now imagine being a prisoner that night there in that you know, prison and a prison guard in that prison. I mean, I'm sure they were very used to people cussing. I'm sure they were used to people complaining. I'm sure they were used to people crying out in pain because of the suffering that they were going through. But worshiping God, that was probably a new one for them to, to sit back and say, well, wait a second, what are these guys doing? They're singing, and what are these words that they're singing? They're, they're singing to God, and you know, this must have been something that had a, quite an impact I'm sure the other prisoners were wondering, who are these guys? Who responds to a beating and imprisonment and unjust treatment with worship? John Stott, a great pastor and commentator, said this, Anyone can be happy in pleasant circumstances, 
But real joy comes within and is a gift available to Christians at all times. Instead of cursing men, Paul and Silas chose to worship God. You know, there are two things here that we learn about worship from Paul and Silas that I want us to take note of. The first thing to note is that worshiping God isn't about a feeling. It's a choice that we make because he's always worthy of our worship. Worshiping God isn't about a feeling. It's a choice that you and I make because God is always worthy of our worship. Worship is something we need to choose to do, not something we just periodically do when we feel like it. You know, I've heard many Christians say something that I myself have said many times, and I'm sure most of you are guilty of saying this as well. I don't feel like worshiping God today, so I'm not going to. I don't feel like it. You know, my circumstances aren't very good. I'm going through this hardship, or I'm going through this trouble, or I'm, I'm in this, you know, this problem. And so I just don't feel like worshiping. I feel like complaining. I feel like moping. I feel like being depressed. I feel like all these other things. I don't feel like worshiping, and so therefore, I'm not going to. If there are things or situations where you say, I don't feel like worshiping God. I want you to think about this situation that Paul and Silas are in. You know, of all situations where you could you know, say, you know what, I don't feel like worshiping God. My back was just beaten. I was thrown into prison unjustly. I'm, I'm here in these socks and I'm super uncomfortable. I don't feel like worshiping God. You know, they would maybe be more justified than we often are. And when we say, I don't feel like it. But you know what? They understood something that's so important that we need to understand as well. Worshiping God isn't about a feeling. It's a choice that we make because he's always worthy of our worship. No matter how bad we feel, no matter how bad the situation is, it doesn't change the fact that God is still worthy of your worship. If God never did one more thing for you for the rest of your life, he's still worthy of worship for who he is and all he's already done. And I think so often it's like, well, it's great of what you did, Lord, but if you want me to continue to worship you, then you better continue to do this, this, and this so that I have these great feelings of worship. And if I don't feel it, then I'm not going to do it. But that shouldn't be the reason why we worship. We should worship him because he's worthy, and we make a choice to do that. Something else I think important for us to understand is that when you're going through a horrible situation and that horrible situation brings you to that place where you say, you know what, I don't feel like worshiping God. That's the most important time to do it. Maybe you've experienced that. I know I have myself. You know, when, when you're in that place where you're saying, you know what, I don't feel like worshiping, that is the most important time to worship God. Because it's in that time that you really need to change your perspective. The reason it's so important to worship God when we're going through a horrible situation is the next point I want you to take note of. Worship takes our mind off of our troubles and focuses on God and all he has done for us, which helps us to better deal with our troubles. Worship takes your mind off yourself. It takes your mind off your troubles. It takes your mind off your difficulties, and it places your mind on God on who he is, on what he's done for you, on the many things that you have to be thankful for, on how he's blessed you immensely. You know, we start to realize we have reason to worship. I have reason to take joy. I have reason to be thankful. And then our focus starts to change from my difficult situation to who God is and what he's done and the reasons that I have to worship. 
And when that happens, our attitude and our mindset towards our difficult situation also starts to change. You know, I've discovered something, and I'm sure you have as well, that the more I focus on my problems, the bigger they grow. Until they really get to a place where they feel like they're insurmountable. And you just keep focusing on the problem, keep focusing on the problem. It doesn't make it any better. It just makes it worse. It just grows and grows and grows. But I've discovered something else. The more I focus on God and not my problem, the more I worship Him and don't look at my problem, the more I'm I'm focused on the Lord, all of a sudden I start to see my problem in light of His power. I see my problem in light of who He is and what He's done and the greatness that He's brought into my life. And all of a sudden my problem doesn't look so big anymore and I recognize I have a God who's much bigger than my problem who can get me through my problem and that's why worship in these times are so vital because it helps us to change our perspective and get it where it should be our eyes on Jesus instead of our eyes on the issue the problem that we have you know we see this so often with David in the Psalms David's life wasn't that easy He had a lot of difficulty, and a lot of the psalms that he wrote were in the wilderness time of his life, where he's running from his life from King Saul, who's seeking to kill him. And I love those psalms because you see such a huge focus on who God is to David. And you know, David's writing about the difficulties and the struggles, but yet he sees those things in light of God, and he says, you know, God is my fortress He's my high tower. He's my strength. He's my ever-present help in time of weakness. He came to a recognition that, you know what, even though Saul's come in after me to kill me, even though my situations are hard, I recognize that I have a God who is my strength. I have a God who's my high tower. I have a God that I can run to who will protect me and take care of me and help me in the midst of this difficulty that I'm in. David's worshiped. Help him take his mind off of his troubles and focus him on God and all that God had done for him, which helped him better deal with those troubles. So Paul and Silas, when they made a choice, I'm sure they didn't feel like it, when they made a choice to worship God in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this hardship, it reveals two very important things to us when it comes to worship. Worship isn't about a feeling, it's a choice that we make Because God is always worthy of our worship, and worship takes our mind off of our troubles and focuses them on God and all he's done for us to help us better deal with our troubles. So we've been challenged with why we should worship, when we should worship, what are some of the blessings that worship brings to us. But I want us to ponder something else, how our worship of God can impact someone else. We're going to see the worship of Silas and Paul impacting someone else. So there they are. They're in that dungeon. They're shackled and their feet are in stocks. They've just been beaten and they're worshiping the Lord. And let's see what happens in verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But when Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Now, I want you to try to picture this circumstance. Here are Paul and Silas, and they're just worshiping the Lord in the midst of this horrible situation, and all of a sudden, something miraculous happens. An earthquake hits. And this isn't just some random earthquake. 
This is a supernatural earthquake because we see the fact that all the prison doors open and all the chains fall off. Now, that's just not normal when an earthquake happens. So this is something that God is supernaturally doing. They're worshiping him, and boom, the prison doors open, the chains fall off, and there they are, free to walk out of the prison. Now, when the prison guard awakes, he sees the doors open. And he supposes something, surely they didn't stay, you know, I mean, here's their opportunity to go, and so he grabs a sword, and he's about to kill himself. You might be thinking, that's an odd response. Well, actually, back in that time, if you were a guard of anything in the Roman Empire, and your prisoner escaped, then they would do to you what that prisoner was supposed to have done to them in order to keep guards, you know, not leaving their posts. And so he knew, hey, I'm going to be killed anyway, so I might as well just take care of it right now. And so he's about to kill himself, and right before he just plunges himself with that sword, Paul cries out, because Paul realizes, you know, what this guy's about to do and the reason why, and he says, do yourself no harm. Why? Because we're all here. We haven't left. You haven't lost any of your prisoners. You know, don't kill yourself. Now, I want you to notice something very important here. God miraculously has the prison doors open, the chains fall off, Paul and Silas and the rest of the prisoners, by the way, and no one leaves. If I was stuck in that prison, I want you to think if you were stuck in that prison and you just went through that horrible situation, chains fall off, doors open, I'm the first one out of there. I mean, I don't know about you, it's like, here's my opportunity, I'm not going to wait around for them to close these things up and lock me back up and keep me here. You know, this is obviously supernatural, God's, you know, opened the door for me just like he did with Peter, I'm out of here. But I want you to notice something, it would have been easy for Paul and Silas to escape thinking God had instigated another miraculous prison break, but yet... The lives of others were more important than their own personal freedom and comfort. And not escaping, Paul and Silas showed tremendous discernment. The circumstance says, escape. But love for this jailer says, you know what, stay. They were not guided by mere circumstances. They were guided by what love compelled. You know, the first aspect of what Paul and Silas did in their worship, we noted that they were worshiping in song. They were singing hymns to the Lord in the midst of their difficult situation. And, you know, that's really the most common thing that we think about as believers. When we hear the word worship, we think about singing songs to God. You know, there was actually a survey done among Christians asking them what they associated with worship. And the top three answers were singing playing the piano or the organ, and raising your hands. Uh, Those are the three things that people associated the most when it came to worship. When we think of worship, we usually think of singing songs to the Lord. Now, that's definitely part of worship, but that's not all of worship. That's just one demonstration. That's just one expression of worship to God. But worship is definitely much more than just singing. You know, the most common way we can demonstrate worship to God is how we live our lives. You know, sometimes we just have this mindset of worship is just singing songs. Actually, that's, that's probably the, the, the least vital of all. The most important one is, how are you worshiping God in the way in which you live? Romans 12.1, a great passage on worship, says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your reasonable worship. What is Paul telling us? He's saying, you know what? One of the most significant ways that you can worship God is to present your body a living sacrifice. Not say, Lord, I'm going to die for you necessarily, but Lord, I'm going to live for you every day. Every day I'm going to live for you. Your will be done, not mine. I'm seeking to please you and obey you with my life, and I'm going to demonstrate worship to you in doing that. 
You see, Paul and Silas were not only worshiping God through their songs. They started worshiping God long before that. They started worshiping God just going to Philippi to begin with because they were being obedient to God's call in their life. They were worshiping God as they you know, were faithful to share the gospel, worshiping God as they were willing to free this slave girl from demonic possession, worshiping God in the midst of you know, that horrible treatment that was unjust, worshiping God as they don't leave the prison when they could have so they could stay back and reach this jailer. One of the best ways that you and I can worship God is by obeying what he tells us to do, to daily live our lives for him. You see, Worship through your actions, I believe, to God is much more significant than worship through song. Because you can sing lots of songs, but if your actions contradict what you're singing, how much worth and meaning is that? You know, my, my daughters love to write little love notes to me. And, you know, it's nice to read them and it's great to hear them. But at the end of the day, if all day long they've been disobedient, 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 and they feel guilty, and at the end of the day they write me this love note, that love note doesn't really mean that much because you say, you know what, it contradicts your actions all day long. I would have much rather obedience all day and then saying out of that, oh, Daddy, here is our note of love or our song of love. But, you know, their actions were not going with what they were sharing. You know, Think of the chorus of the worship song, Forever Rain, that we just sang this morning. Oh, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. Now think of someone's life who isn't really living for Christ. Well, not really. I'm not really running towards you at all. I'm actually running away from you. I'm kind of just doing my own thing. But it sounds really nice, so I'll sing it. The riches of your love will always be enough. Well, it's not going to be enough for me to submit my life to you. It's not enough for me to live for you. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever reign. Well, actually, a lot of things compare to it to me. A lot of things are, are making me willing to live for them. And, you know, I don't want you to forever reign in my life. I mean, the reality is we can sing these words, but if our lifestyle is contradicting all of them, how much meaning do they really have? And I think that's the reality of sometimes we just see worship in song, and God's like, no, 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 I want you to worship in your life. And then in your words and your song, that's just going to be a natural uh, reflection of your worship. And those songs are going to have so much more depth and meaning because you're actually seeking to live the things that you're singing. So worship is something that is not just a Sunday thing because it's not just about singing. It's not just a midweek thing because it's not just about singing. It's an everyday thing because it's about living your life for Jesus Christ. Now I want to jump forward for a second to verse 35 and I want you to note something and we'll come back. It says... And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. Now, here's something I want you to think about. God knew. He knows the future. He knew in the morning the magistrates were going to say, let these guys go. So why at midnight does he send an earthquake to open the doors and break the chains off? They couldn't wait a few more hours? He knew that they were going to be released in the morning. So why does he miraculously do this? It wasn't to free them. It wasn't to allow them to escape prison. It was to give them an opportunity to reach this prison guard. It wasn't to free them. It was to free this guy, free him from his sin, free him from the ultimate consequence of his sin, which is hell. Imagine this guy. He, he hears Paul and Silas worshiping, probably something he'd never heard, and being a prison guard for who knows how long. And you know, he hears the cries, he hears other things, but here they're worshiping. And then all of a sudden, There's this earthquake and the prison opens. This miraculous thing happens and he's about to kill himself because he thinks they're all gone. And these guys love him enough to stay. And notice how he responds to watching worship 
being demonstrated not only in song, but also in lifestyle. Verse 29 says this. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them to his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Notice the response of this prison guard. He's heard the worship of Paul and Silas. He's seen worship demonstrated through their love towards him. He's seen the miraculous move of God. And his response is, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I want you to note something very important here. The prison guard was so impressed by Paul and Silas, by the way they loved him, by the way that they worshipped in the midst of misery and horrible circumstances, that he instantly wants the kind of life they have. What must I do to be saved? I want what you guys have. What do I have to do to get that? This is how God wants our lives to be. He wants us to be natural magnets drawing people to him through the way in which we worship him with our lives. This brings us to our third point I want us to consider this morning about worship. Our lifestyle of worship to God, especially in difficult circumstances, points and draws others to him. I think something important for you to realize, the day that you tell people that you are a Christian... They start watching you more closely. Hey, I'm a believer in Jesus. Really? Now my eyes are on you. Now I'm watching you. Now I'm watching how you live your life, how you respond to good times and bad times. And you know what? They're especially watching you when it comes to difficulty. Because it's easy in many respects to live and rejoice and worship God when everything's good going on in your life. But all of a sudden you hit a difficulty. You hit a hardship. You hit a loss. All right, let's see how you respond now. Oh, you've been talking about how great and loving Jesus is and how wonderful it is to be a Christian. Now, let's see how you respond to this. And they're watching. They want to see, how are you going to respond to this difficulty? And when you respond to hardships and trials and suffering with worship to God, with peace, with love, that's something that the world looks at and they just think, that's not something I have. I want that. I want hope. I want peace. I want that love. I want that assurance. I want those things. What must I do to get that? And that's what we see here with this prison guard. When Paul and Silas have demonstrated this worship to them, what must I do to be saved? And what a great question, really the most important question anyone can ask. What must I do to be saved? And I want you to note the answer because we've been looking at this the last few chapters in Acts. They don't make it complicated. They bring it back to the reality of what you need. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe in who God is, that he is God. Believe that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. Believe in that and you will be saved. So that's what you must do to be saved. What must you do to be lost? Nothing. We're born that way. All of us are lost from the day that we're born to the day that we accept Christ. 
There's nothing you got to do to be lost. You're already in that place if you haven't accepted Jesus. And the only way to be found, the only way to be saved, is to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in what he's done for you. Well, Paul and Silas get the privilege of not only preaching to this jailer, but his whole family. And not only does this jailer receive Christ, but the whole family receives Christ. And we're told that they baptize them. And this guy responds right away, man, let me go and you know, take care of your wounds. He might have been the guy that was beating them to begin with. And now he's the guy that's trying to clean their wounds and he feeds them. And you know, we see his change right away and demonstrating love to Paul and Silas. So something important for us to understand is when you and I make a choice, we make a choice to worship God even when we don't feel like it because it's not based on feeling. We say, you know what, I'm going to choose to worship you in the midst of this difficulty. Not only does it take our mind off our troubles and help us to better deal with our troubles because we see God in light of it, but it does something else that's very important as well. It impacts the people watching us and often points and draws them to Jesus. When we worship, it's an example to others. And that's something I think that is so important for us to realize as followers of Jesus and as you consider yourself mature in the Lord. When you worship God, it's an example to others. Not just non-Christians, it's an example to Christians who many times don't worship God the way they should. You know, this is one of the reasons why we keep the young kids in for the first two songs. We want to be, as adults, an example to them of worship. We want them to experience that. We want them to see that. We want them to watch and say, this is what worship is. I want to see those who are supposedly mature in the Lord and doing that. I want to look at my parents. I want to see them worship. I want to look at other adults and see them worship. We want to be an example to them. And this one avenue of expression to God through song and hopefully through our lives as well and showing them this is what worship is and let them see that because we are examples to them. Now, whether we're good or bad is a whole other story, but we are an example, and we want to be a good example to them of worship, and that's why we have them spend that time with us so they can see that. Well, let's see what happens next, verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So the magistrates now, morning comes, and they send word, you know what, let them go, they can go. Well, notice Paul's response when he hears that the magistrates are saying, you're now allowed to leave. He says, they beat us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, you tell them to come down here and let us out of prison. Now, here's the issue that Paul recognizes, and he's letting these guys know. In the Roman Empire, there were two very different laws, one for citizens of Rome and one for non-citizens of Rome. Citizens of Rome had very strong uh, uh, laws that guarded their civil rights, and if those civil rights were not given, then there were very strong consequences, some even death if you didn't give that to a Roman citizen. So, you know, Roman citizens were to be treated properly. If you were a non-Roman citizen, you could pretty much do what you wanted to that person. Now, this is the problem. The magistrates feel like, hey, 
you're two Jews, surely you're not Roman citizens, and so we'll just beat you, we won't give you a trial, we won't do anything that you should give for a Roman citizen, we'll throw you in prison unjustly, and we don't even care because nothing's going to happen to us because you're not Roman citizens. Now all of a sudden, Paul tells them, I am a Roman citizen, and so is Silas. And they're greatly afraid, and they have good reason to be greatly afraid because there could have serious consequences to come on them. And now notice the change in tone. First it's, I'll beat you and throw you in prison and just leave you there. Now they come and they plead with them and they ask them. They don't tell them, could you please leave our city? And they say, no, we're not going to go yet. They go to Lydia's house and they meet the brethren, the new people who have gotten saved there in Philippi. And it's only until after they've encouraged them that they decide on their own to leave and go away. So in these verses, we've learned three great lessons about worship. Worshiping God isn't about a feeling. It's a choice that we make because he's always worthy of our worship. Worship takes our mind off of our troubles and focuses it on God and all he's done for us, which helps us to better deal with our troubles. And our lifestyle of worship to God, especially in difficult circumstances, points and draws others to him. And these three lessons answer the three questions that I posed at the beginning of this teaching. Why should you worship God? Well, because he's always worthy of it. That's why. That really should be the only reason that we need. He's worthy, and not just sometimes, all the time. He's worthy of our worship, and that's why we should worship him. Well, when should we worship him? Well, because he's worthy every day. Not just in song, but in our life. And everything that we do, we should seek to do it to bring worship to the Lord. And how does your worship of God impact others? Well, it often points them and draws them to Jesus, which is something that we should hopefully want to see happen, of others recognizing the power of God and the love of Jesus through our worship for him.